If you've had any experience with uh, churches that teach the sinner's prayer, uh, decisional regeneration, uh, at the end of the service, they'll ask you to and raise your hand. Um, you may be puzzled, as I was, that they often quote Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, if you're familiar with his history, his theology, is thoroughly reformed, uh, often called uh, the last Puritan or the great American Puritan. Uh, thoroughly reformed, uh, probably the most well-known reformed Baptist. And so uh, you may wonder why would churches or theologies uh, regarding how a person comes to Christ uh, quote a person that is clearly on the opposite polar end of that. And I would submit to you the reason why that is, uh, is true, the reason why we is because uh, Spurgeon has every other single faithful preacher, so preached the text in context that if you took without any other scriptures, you could twist it to say different things, right? He was so faithful on the call to repentance that you could say maybe he preached like an Arminian in that context of the need for repentance, right? Does that make sense? You follow me so far? So that is my goal today. And though our text doesn't deal with the nature of regeneration, it deals with assurance of salvation. It deals with sin and righteousness. And it deals with how these things go together. I want to let the text speak. And taken out of context with even what John has said in the first verses of this chapter, it is possible to get a wrong idea. Nevertheless, I want to let the text speak. So, if you follow me on that, I want you to consider everything that John says in his, in his first epistle here, but also to allow, uh, there, there's some heat, there's some energy with some of this uh, that we'll be going over today. And we are, we are the, the free grace people. We love to hear about the grace of God but I would, uh, I would request that you let, if there's a sting in anything in the text here, that the Lord intended that you'd allow that, to contemplate that. Um, and with that said, if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read the first six verses of 1 John chapter 2, but our sermon text for today is verses 3 through six. Then my last message was verses one and two. But I want you to see all that's going on here. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now our sermon text here. Now by this, oh, that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him, ought himself 
also to walk just as he walked. Amen. Almighty God, oh, Father, would you help separate error in our thinking today, Father? Lord, nothing affects us more than what we think about you. So would you see fit this day, Father, to feed your sheep, feed your children. Give us a right understanding where we may err in our understanding of our Father. We want to love Christ more. We want to hate sin more, Father. We want to be obedient children experiencing the full love and joy and satisfaction of the finished work of Christ, Father. For your honor and glory alone, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. I have a, a sermon today I have entitled, Are You Walking Christ or Lying? And I have three points. They'll come up in time. I won't give them at the beginning here. But all of the points, the three points, can all be under the heading of this, okay? It's an argument. It's a logical argument. Shut it off. Oh, my mic, okay. I can't hear it up here. Is that good? Is it working fine? Yeah. If it doesn't, let me know. I'll just grab one of the other mics. Okay. Thank you, brother. So the, the whole premise here, it, it, three points are going to be under a very long argument from the Scripture. That is why we read uh, the Old Testament and New Testament uh, readings that we did today. Andrew read to us, and it's this. Here's the premise. It's God's children love him. God's children love him. And that love is demonstrated not with words, not simply with warm affections, but God's children love him and demonstrate it in obedience. So that's the premise that all the points are going to come under, um, and we'll jump right in here with assurance of salvation, verse 3. Now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. John writes this because he wants his, as he calls them, little children, to have confidence in their salvation, in Christ. And that assurance is based on visible tangible outworking of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life that will produce obedience. It will produce fruit for it is grafted into the true vine. So there's a danger in emphasizing this. There's a danger in misunderstanding, okay? It's not try harder. It's not do harder. It is saying, as we read uh, just a moment ago, or as Brother Andrew that Christians can't produce good works because they are uh, intrinsically tied to God and His promise. Turn with me to Jeremiah 31, 31, please. While you turn there, I want to give you a a little backdrop to what was going on before. Uh, Brother Andrew mentioned it briefly um, in the text that Uh, But so, if you're familiar with the Exodus, right, uh, the children of Israel are in Egypt, 
Uh, They cry out to the Lord, help us, we're in bondage, we're mistreated. The Lord hears their cry, and he utilizes Moses as his mouthpiece, and he brings his people, with with God's strong right arm, he brings them out of bondage. The book of Exodus is analogous to our delivery from the chains of our own sin. He brings them out with a strong right arm, and as God does very often, his, his model the way he interacts with people as groups so often uh, is he demonstrates his goodness first. He doesn't have to. God is just and holy and right. And if he simply commanded us to obey his law, he would be perfectly righteous to do so. But in the demonstration and character, the nature of God, he often does great work, great wonders. He demonstrates great kindness towards sinful people. And then, as he did with Israel, as he brought them out, he displayed some of the the greatest miracles ever observed by a single generation, right? He brings them out, then he says to them, he makes them an offer, a covenant he lays before his people. He says, if you will obey my laws, if you will observe my statutes, I will be your God And you will be my people. And how do they respond? Are you familiar with that? How do they respond? All these things we will do. We will do it. Andrew read part of it, right? And how long do they do it? Two minutes. Yes, I heard two minutes. Maybe less. Right? They murmur against God. They disobey Moses. They build a calf. Aaron, the first priest, builds a a, a golden calf. And they read it and they say, they worship it and they say, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt, right? And this goes on, not for a year, not for a decade, not for a century, but nearly 700 years, these people that have entered into this covenant with the living God to obey his statutes that he would bless them, they never do it. To you now from Jeremiah 31. 31 is the verse we'll pick up at. After that, right, after all of this, this, uh, this uh, all the, the prophets that were sent, that were murdered, Jeremiah comes with this word from the Lord, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. And write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor. And every man his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them. Says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And their sin. No more. Turn with me now to Ezekiel, a contemporary of Jeremiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. They were all, their their ministries overlapped. 
Ezekiel 36 speaks of the same thing, the, the, the looking down the road dimly at the new coming. Ezekiel 36, start in verse 22. Listen to the emphasis of who is doing the work here. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations, wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean." I will cleanse you from all your iniquities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanliness. I will call for the grain and and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees, the increase of your fields, so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourself in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. What does the Lord mean at the end of Ezekiel there when he says, not for your sake do this? That's how we started that. We started there. We ended there. Not for your sake, O Israel, do I do this. If you understand what's going on there, you understand what God is promising. He's saying 700 years of disobedience, and then and Jeremiah steps on the scene, and from there it's another like 600 years roughly. So 1,300 years the nation of Israel has practiced nothing but harlotry with foreign gods. And this, this proclamation comes from Jeremiah, from Ezekiel, That there is a day coming where obedience to God's law is synonymous with His people. Not like the Old Covenant. That it will be clear. God's name will be exalted among the nations because of the faithfulness of His children. That's the promise. We live under that. We look back to that. Things changed. But why does God say, not for your sake, I do that. He he says that, and he says, he tells us there in the beginning that he does it for his name's sake. He would do it for the glory of your name, of his name, sorry. How can you have confidence, Christian? How can you have confidence that you will forsake that sin in your life that easily besets you? Assurance. That you are Christ's 
will persevere in holiness, trust in the promises of God. He is doing this, not motivated for you primarily, but for the glory of His name. God is holy, and He is perfect, and therefore, the love that God has for His name eclipses even the love of His children, for it is good, and it's just, and it's right, and it brings us as children great comfort to consider that God's zeal for His name is intrinsically entwined with the promise that His children will be obedient. It's a comfort. It's yoke. It's not a work harder that you're accepted. It's a comfort. You won't be like Israel. It's not like the old covenant. It's gone. The promise of obedience for God's children. That brings us to our second point. The self-deceived liar. Four. Who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. This is a sobering verse, brethren. The reality of this verse should strike us in the face. Any professing Christian who makes a practice of sin, should be taken back by this verse. Part of the challenge in a message dealing with a text like this is the people that are the most sensitive, most tender, have have the the most uh, sensitive consciences to the Lord's Word and and their uh, their own stumbling, their own sin. Saints, they are the ones that sometimes this message is more likely to land on. And that's not what's going on here. The Lord said Himself that bruised reed He would not break and a smoldering flax He would not extinguish. The Lord brings His children to glory. He saves them that have the smallest and the weakest of faith. As long as that faith is in the true Messiah. But also at the same time, Sometimes when these messages go out or the text like this is dealt with, those who most need it to land are the first to dismiss it or to think of someone else. So may the Lord have mercy on anybody here that may find themselves in this category of being self-deceived. I'd attention to Judas on uh, the night that Christ uh, was uh, betrayed. If you remember there in the meal, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, one of you is going to betray me. And the other disciples, they didn't all look at Judas. They didn't say, oh yeah, it's Judas, we know, right? What'd they say? Is it I? Is it I, Lord? What is it I? Right? That's the, that's the conscience of Believer who understands their the sin that remains in their member in their body, right? They're sensitive to that. Judas wasn't visiting brothels. He he wasn't 
murdering people in the streets. He, he kept his greed in his heart. He cherished it. He cherished his sin of it. And when offered forgiveness of sin, he was with the man. He was with Christ. He audibly heard him speak. He saw the miracles. For the forgiveness of sin. The perfect pardon. Fellowship with God. He rejected it. He sold the king of glory. For 30 pieces of silver. My dear brethren, this should give us pause. Ability to be self-deceived. The blind effects of sin. Be able to sit one day at church, hear the word, maybe have it read to you regularly be dead and to be blind. If you could be like this and hear Christ's words, you'll be blind. Surely. Surely. That is the only explanation that we have for the condition of the American church today. There's no other expl- explanation that makes sense in the American church today, of the, the lack of transforming power and total impotence of the American church and that we have in the words of John, liars without the truth in them. In our churches. Don't misunderstand me. The Apostle John is not saying, dear Christian, try harder. Hear me on that. Liar, self-deceived, pornographer, idolater, covetous, repent. He is saying, bring it home, maybe. (sighs) Professing Christian doesn't curse, votes Republican, who homeschools, listens to only theologically sound music, leads Bible study, is asked to read Scripture in church, is a church officer, yet in their heart of hearts, where nobody but God can peer in and see, you idolize wealth, comfort, Respectability, love and cherish any other sin or any other thing more than Christ. 
God has declared, he stated so clearly, that the truth is not in these people. They are liars. God has stated clearly that no more will His children be enslaved to the lusts of their flesh. Because God has put His Spirit in His children. He has done it for the glory of His name. It makes it make sense. That's why it will be, uh, it will be manifest in the Christian life. They will have a transformed life. They can't not keep God's word. It's a fact more sure than the sun rising tomorrow. Those who've had an encounter with the living God will keep His commandments. We trust God's saving power in death we can trust His sanctifying power now. I'll give you a, a demonstration that I lifted from Paul Washer. Suppose that I came in today. I was a little late. And I said, um, you know, I'm sorry I'm late. Uh, on the way to church, I got a flat tire. And uh, as I was changing the tire, a semi came by and, and it hit me about a hundred feet. And I slid down the road. He looked at me and dressed fine. There's no grease on me. Every reformed whisker on my face is in place. What would you think? Fire, right? A lot. How I've had an encounter with a I be unchanged, right? Right? Yet we have churches filled with people that say they've had an encounter with the living God. That God is indwelling in their hearts and they look unchanged. How is this? The power of self-deception, the power of I to deny what God has said, that He will have faithful children. Not dependent on your ability. Dependent on God's promises. It's interesting that God calls the commandment breakers liars without the truth in them. Lying has a devastating effect on the mind. If you want to think with me for a moment, I have an illustration, another one. Somewhere that you normally go. Work, church, the gym, school. When you arrive, you realize that you don't remember the drive itself. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Maybe you were going to work, hopefully it wasn't on the drive to church this morning. How does this happen? We actually know, scientists have 
grain mapping and, and, and they've, they've looked in. They, they understand at some level what is going on there. You see, uh, we, we have a neurological network in our minds where the, the neurons transfer electrons or electrical impulses between each other. And we create in our mind electrical paths. And the more that we do the same task, the, the, the more pronounced that, that trail is, that path. Like, like if you go hiking and you, you, know, you see, you, this is the trail that you hike on because it's a well-worn path. That we do when we repeat tasks, okay? And that's why we can get in and be thinking about whatever we think about and we arrive somewhere. And I, don't, I don't remember driving here because we're on that well-worn mental neurological pathway. You can get to the point where your brain will actually automate the task and you are using very little conscious thoughts. Your brain is just traveling down the known pathway automatically. Furthermore, have you ever driven somewhere that was close to home or church or work or school and you go on the autopilot and you wind up pulling into somewhere else? Is, it, is that just me? Or Okay, I'm, uh, I guess you're laughing. Your brain is in auto... Maybe you're laughing at me. I don't know. <laughs> don't write me. <laughs> you, you, you are in that automated zone, right? You're, you're holding other things in your conscious mind and just on that neurological pathway and you roll into church and it's Saturday or whatever and I'm not going here. I was going to Sprouts. Right. Um, well... What John is getting at here in this statement that liars have no truth in them is that their self-deception has been automated to the point that they are on autopilot. This is real. You can make a practice of any sin, specifically the context of lying, and you can get so good at it that you wear a path Envision that well-worn hiking path where all the weeds are high, but that, that trail that goes through is well-defined, right? We do that in our minds with lying. And we get so good at it. Maybe some of you have had encounters with, with habitual liars who you can catch them in a lie. You know beyond a shadow of a doubt they're, a shadow of a doubt, they're, they're lying to your face. And they're so angry and, and trying to exclaim that they didn't do it that you wonder, did I really do that? Right? Like, so, so there's a reality here that their brain is so good at lying that they're not telling a conscious lie. They've trained themselves to practice that sin. And we could do that with any other sin. And so it's automated. We've taught ourselves to sin well. To the point that the truth is no longer in this person. That's, that lie flows right out. That makes sense? Talking about here. These people so deceived that the truth isn't in them. Do Christians lie? Yes. And Christians repent. And Christians grow in holiness. And year by year they lie less. And they don't make a practice of lying. Sometimes you're asked a question. 
I think I used the example before. Did you, did you read my email? Yeah. And it just flies right out. And, yeah, I didn't read that email. And you lie, right? It's wrong. I'm not making a lot of the sin. It's just how it, sometimes you didn't plan on it. But the people that professing Christians that do not have in them make a practice of lies. The truth of the matter is that every single Christian was at one point self-deceived and had trained themselves to sin and whatever poison they picked. <clears throat> Until the day the blood of Christ applied to your account and the Holy Spirit came in to break those chains of deception, broke the stony heart, and set in its place of what? Flesh. A heart of flesh. What happens to your flesh if you brush up against something sharp? You get a, you get a wound, you get a bruise, you bleed. Right? Not the same with a stone. God takes of stone gives us a heart of flesh it's sensitive to sin. he sets us walking on a path of obedience don't mistake the emphasis in the text it's why we read from ezekiel and jeremiah you hear me say it again and again christian brothers sisters i don't want you to miss it we read from Jeremiah and from Ezekiel, because God said he would make for himself and for his name a people who would keep his commandments. When you deny this reality, you destroy the new covenant. When you excuse yourself or for others whose life is defined by practiced sin, name Christ. They may even have a very orthodox, a robust theology they can. Uh, espouse to you. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Bart Ehrman. Anybody ever heard of him? Graduated from Moody. I see a head shake, a hand and a head shake. I'll give you a real brief description. Christians' faith regularly, or at least is an impediment, a stumbling block for them. He graduated from Moody. Very intellectually gifted man. Was a professing Christian until the day that his lack of True conversion was evident that he had never, um, he had left Christ because he was never among Christ. Um, and he's gifted deeply with intellect and the ability to study and would probably embarrass just about any of us here if we debated, even though he's 100% wrong, right? <clears throat> I had a point for that and I lost it. <laughs> I'll continue. God said he'd make for himself a name and people who would keep his commandments. And when you deny this reality, you destroy the new covenant. That's what, that was my point. So that it doesn't matter how robust your theology is. Bart Ehrman has uh, an encyclopedic knowledge of theology, right? He could go out, he could, go, he could take you to the Greek and embarrass you. It's not the information in his mind. It's not the information in your mind. It's the condition of your heart. We can all be prone to grace abuse or legalism, but those views look to the performance of a man only, only, right? We are talking about visible fruit, but we, we look to that almost, maybe we don't think 
but almost that the works themselves are meritorious or they contribute to justification. We're, we're on one or two sides of that. John speaks of God's certainty. God's certainty that his children will be marked by obedience. Not perfection, obedience. That is the flavor that rises to the top, right? The aroma on your life. Stumbling at times, getting up, repenting, growing in holiness, probably slower than you would like, not as holy as you wish you were, striving in the tenor of your life. Maybe friends from your days before you were converted. They know something's different. Something's different. That's what's going on here. John speaks of God's certainty. Yes, there is visible fruit. We can see. But it's an evidence of God's work, not the means of justification. That brings us to our third point. The love of God perfected. Verse 5, But whoever keeps his word, him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him, my dear brethren. The feeling of God's love and assurance of salvation certainly have an emotional component to them. I don't deny this, but we all can be subject to false emotions, yes, even into one night of little sleep, one too many slices of pizza, a bad drive home, and our emotions can make us feel all manner of things that are just not so. Christian, we can all do things at times. One. Where did that come from? We want our feelings to align with what our minds tell us is true. But that's not where our eyes should be fixated. Look to Christ and the demonstration of new affections at war. Flesh. Verse 6 tells us that we are to walk in the same way in which Walked. What do you think of when I say that? Come to mind. Walk in the same way in which Christ walked. Got it? You thinking about that? Christ's path to Calvary was hard. It was grueling. He was weak, exhausted, beaten, bloody, bruised. Blessed Savior flowed love, peace, patience, humility, faith, obedience, and self-sacrifice. That's how we are exhorted to walk as Christ walked. That is the love of God perfected. Though you may be weary of the battle, though you may be weary of the battle, still you continue to fight. Though at times you may lose ground, still you look behind you and you see how far God has brought you. 
I said it already, none of us are as sanctified or as holy as we wish you as we wish we were. It's a reality in my life. Sometimes I just think I've walked with the Lord nearly 17 years. I just thought I'd be further along by now. But then I look back. I forget until I look back. I see not what I've done. I see what the Lord has done in my life. Christians, we can all do that when we're weary. We fall into that same thing again. Remember, not paying, not loving and cherishing. The flesh is weak, right? Spirit's willing. The flesh is weak. We stumble, we fall. Shame comes up. We feel unholy. Take great comfort. Great comfort. The Christian can take great comfort in that you will persevere. You will grow in holiness. You will grow. Again, it is more guaranteed than the sun coming up tomorrow. If you're in Christ, given you a new with new emotions and new affections, it is guaranteed you will grow because the Lord has promised for His namesake you will keep His Couldn't find a quote to attribute it. But I think who said, when I look to myself, I wonder how I can be saved. But then I look to my Savior and I wonder how I can be lost. That resonates with this. I look to myself and I don't know how I can be saved. But I look to my Savior wonder how I can be lost. Or, the infamously wicked slave ship owner, who is now our brother in glory, John Newton, he once stated, you, might, you probably have heard this, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. That, my dear brothers and sisters, is a man who understands the love of God perfected. Still aware of the sin in his life. Not finished. Still a race to run. But he knows he's on the team. Right? He's on the team. You can never be good enough. You can never be obedient enough to earn salvation. You can never be just enough. A holy and righteous God could never pardon wicked sinners on their own merit. Couldn't happen. But when you trust in the Lord, His goodness, His sacrifice is good enough for us. Christ has told us that He has sent the paraclete. You guys heard that term before? The paraclete. It's taken from John 14, where Andrew read earlier, referring to the Holy Spirit. That's the, the word there, right? The passage that was read earlier during the New Testament reading, God abides 
children, it's called there, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. And it's understood as a helper and a comforter for God's children. I'm, I'm amazed at what, what Jesus told the disciples after the resurrection. Imagine this. You go with me in your mind, if you will. You're there. You, you, all hope was lost as you understand what Christ was teaching you when He said He must go up and be turned he must suffer and die. You didn't understand. He went to the grave. All hope was lost. You ran. You were famous. He rose from the dead. Everything's new. Everything is better. You're amazed at what's going on. And then as you're walking with Christ, he, he was there for 40 days. Um, he's teaching his disciples. And Jesus tells you, there. You see it in your mind. You're there. Jesus tells you, I'm leaving. I'm going to be by my Father's side. And it's going to be better for you. What are your thoughts? How is it better for me? Tells us. Because He's going to give us the Comforter. The Comforter. The Paraclete. Right? To abide with us. Reside in us. Remember Peter? Peter seemed to do so good whenever he was next to Christ. And the second they were separated, failure. Utter failure, right? His proximity to God seemed to help with his perseverance and his obedience. Christian, if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God abides with you always. Always. It is better. The Comforter it comes. If you remember the last sermon too, I, you know, I would, I'm not trying to promote my last sermon, but because the, the context is so helpful. The idea of the, of the advocation of Christ, our propitiation of the right hand of the Father, testifying of His sacrifice on behalf of His children, always going on in glory. Today, yesterday, if you failed and you're in Christ, Christ, if you failed in sin, Christ is advocating His blood on account. It's glorious. It's wonderful. And in, in what we're talking about here in Christ sending the Holy Spirit, comforter here on this side of eternity for us brings comfort. Not justification to, to persevere in planned wickedness, but when we stumble, when we fail, guilt and shame comes in. Holy Spirit comforts us. We remember, we will, if we're in Christ, grow. We will grow. I've used the analogy before with my talking about fruit trees. Right? Uh, fruit trees do not produce Fruit to become fruit trees. That's what they are. Right? If something is supposed to be a fruit tree and it doesn't produce fruit, there's something wrong, right? And non-fruit trees do not produce fruit. You can't go out to your pine tree and hang bananas on it and say it's a fruit tree, right? It's not going to work. But fruit trees do not say, look, it, here's my oranges, I, I'm a fruit tree. No, that's what's in them. They can't but produce fruit they're made down to their genetics their dna of the plant it produces fruit and for the converted believer they can't but produce good work can't but produce fruit because that is in spiritual dna a helper and a comforter our god has promised he will not leave us as orphans but will come to us applications 
If you are a tender-hearted saint, sensitive to sin, sensitive to doubting the profession of faith, don't look to the remaining sin in your life and doubt. Look to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in your life and trust God. For every look at yourself, take ten looks to Christ and trust His promise. Second application. If you find yourself contemplating these things, think, is that me? Am, am, I, am I a liar? That me, do I practice? Lies to the point that the truth is not in me. Repent, repent and practice sin. Often secret sin. For the Christian, it steals the assurance of your salvation. You don't lose yourself. But that robust, nearness, closeness is stifled. It steals the assurance of your salvation at best. And at worst, it proves that you are a liar. And you feel the, the need to repent and you harden your heart. Third application. When you stumble into sin, look to the perfecting love of God and remember His promise. Tied with the first one. When you stumble into sin, look to the perfecting love of God and remember His promise. Oh, we are to repent absolutely. But we're not discouraged as though the outcome of our salvation depends on our abilities. We're not ultimately discouraged because we know our Savior His promises. He will help us to follow through the end. Brethren, we serve an amazing God. We serve a glorious God. And we are so, uh, we're so fortunate to be part of the new covenant and to know that the Lord will deliver obedient children to the glory of His name. Uh, the saints of the Old Testament warned Less saints. They had faith in the same Messiah to come, though they did not know Christ's name, saved just as us. But oh, we are the, benefic- the beneficiaries of a sweet salvation to have the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, abiding with us and us to persevere in obedience to the glory of God's name. Let's pray.